Hi, I'm Patrick McBriarty. And I'm Christopher Lynch. And together, we are the hosts of Windy City Historians. We will share and discuss Chicago history. And some great Chicago stories. Sponsored by Rapunzel. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. No E. Created by two high school friends toward improving financial literacy, offering simulated financial trading competitions and scholarships. Check out their mobile app and interviews of Miles and Brian in the press. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. Welcome to the Windy City Historians podcast, episode 30, The Front Page Era. Patrick, do you read a newspaper? Chris, it's been a while since I've held a newspaper in my hands, but I do check up on the news through usually the Guardian and occasionally the Tribune and the Sometimes. I would say most people get their news online. And I know that newspapers have struggled in the 21st century due to the internet. And I know advertising has basically gone online and papers have been shuttering all over the country. But I guess we're lucky, Patrick, in the sense that Chicago is still a two newspaper town. Yeah, I'm thinking that's kind of unusual. But you know, Patrick, once upon a time, things were very different. A hundred years ago, in the 1920s, there were nine newspapers vying for readers. To learn anything, you had to read the paper to find out what was going on beyond your neighborhood. Right, and that's why they had afternoon papers, because while you were at work, stuff happened. Stuff happened. Right, and then you would come out of your office building, and there'd be a newsboy going extra, extra, read all about it, and you'd grab the newspaper, you'd buy it right there, and then you'd read it on your train ride home. Chicago goes back to about the 1830s with the Chicago American and Chicago Democrat that started just before that. And then what eventually would become the Chicago Tribune was kicked in about, I want to say about 1845-ish or so, 1850. And then for a little while, there was like four newspapers. In the 1920s, which is the period we're going to discuss today. There were basically nine papers vying for readers. Some were morning papers, as, as I said, others were afternoon, some were evening papers, and competition was fierce, and reporters and editors would do practically anything to push newspaper sales. Well, it's all about getting that scoop, right? That's right. You got to get the scoop. And that's what our program is going to concentrate on today, the era of journalism in the 1920s. So as we said at the beginning, this is the front page era, the 1920s. But before we begin, I should probably explain where the title The Front Page comes from. The Front Page was the name of the play that debuted on Broadway on August 14th, 1928. Was that Ben Hecht? Yes, it was Ben Hecht and Charles MacArthur. And as you know, they had both been reporters in Chicago. Hecht was the author of A Thousand One Nights in Chicago, and MacArthur had worked at the Chicago Herald-Examiner and then later the Chicago Tribune. They drew from their crazy reporter days working here in the Windy City in writing their play, where the outlandish stories on stage were lightly fictionalized events that they had actually witnessed on the job. I was just looking at this article written by Fred W. Fraley in 2017 about Art Pataki. Chicago once and still remain a raucous newspaper town. In 1910, at the age of 16, Ben Hecht fled the University of Wisconsin and came to Chicago with $50 in his pocket. A relative recognized him in the street and found him a job at the Chicago Journal. There was his task each day to steal photographs of people who died violent deaths, it being unseemly to publish graphic photos of the dead and the mutilated. 
Ben Hecht was good at sneaking into bedrooms and opening cabinets while relatives sobbed nearby. He once came back with a four by six foot oil painting of the deceased. It was returned, in parentheses. The head copy boy at the journal was then a youngster named Harry Romanoff, age 19, who yearned to be a reporter. Wow. Fast forward to 1966. I'm a newly minted reporter at the Sun-Times across Michigan Avenue at Chicago's American, still labored the roly-poly Harry Romanoff, then the Night City editor. A legendary figure in newspaper circles, he remained capable of old tricks. And he talks about the Richard Speck story. Classic Chicago journalism, immortalized by none other than Hecht and co-conspirator Charles MacArthur in the 1928 play, The Front Page. Patrick, have you ever seen The Front Page? I have not. It makes sense. They say, write what you know. It's really funny. I saw the 1931 movie produced by Howard Hughes and starring Pat O'Brien. There was also a 1974 remake with Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon. And the play is staged periodically on Broadway. And the editor in the play was Walter Burns, who was based on the real-life editor, Walter Howie, with whom MacArthur had worked. This is what Ben Hecht said about Walter Howie. Quote, an invisible menace who sat in the Hearst Tower and with the aid of witches' brews, second sight, and other unethical trumperies, outwitted the town's honest newshounds. Howie had hired ex-cops on the beat as reporters and had spies working at other papers and kidnapped witnesses to stories and wasn't afraid to steal a rival editor away. There's a story about how he orchestrated getting Frank Carlson, a Chicago Tribune city editor, drunk. Then as he was about to pass out, he had him sign a letter of resignation from that paper and contract with Howie's paper. Sounds like he's the antithesis of moral turpitude that is now in a lot of a lot of <laughs> contracts in the academic world. Yes, absolutely. I like that word. That's a buck and a half word, Patrick. <laughs> I don't get to use it very often. The morals seem to be a bit flexible in those days for newspaper men, and journalism may not have been such a highly regarded enterprise. Well, it's funny because nowadays newspapers are filled with journalists who went to Northwestern or Columbia. That was not the case back in this era. A lot of them were not formally educated. It was like a guild. Yeah, I would say a guild is probably a good word. There was sort of your apprenticeship where you'd try to work your way up from a copy boy or the mailroom and earn your stripes as a cub reporter. And You could literally go from the mailroom to the editor of the newspaper. That was, was entirely possible. You're quite right. So Walter Howey wasn't the only legendary reporter and editor that Heck and MacArthur knew and worked with. There was also Harry Romanoff, or Romy as he was called. And Romy had a 50-year career in newspapers in Chicago. And he started out as a copy boy as well, Patrick. In fact, he gave Ben Hecht his first paycheck. Chris, a little research for this front page episode. There was a great article on August 22nd of 1969 in Time magazine. They talked about how the play, the front page, it was done by Ben Hecht and Charles MacArthur that you've talked about, written in 1928. It set the stereotype of the fast-talking, hard-bitten, wise-cracking newspaper reporter that seems to be destined to endure forever, and notes that the play was made twice into movies, was revived on Broadway, and was taped for a presentation on television that season, 1969. 
And they go on about some of these other editors and newspapermen. And Romy, he once observed, quote, they said, I constantly pose for somebody else. It's not my fault if they misunderstand. <laughs> As Romy tells it, That's right. his time was actually up years ago when a tantalizing story broke and he was stopped from switching headlines. What do you mean there's a war in Yemen? He roared. They just stole $25,000 worth of jewels from Ann Sheridan. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah, that was the story that people wanted to read about. Right, and you know this was local news that he was focused on and the police beat. Those were the things of headlines in his mind, not the international news, which was covered by other sources, Reuters and the AP. And think about the spec case in the sense that Romy not only got a jump on everybody else by getting the names of the victims, by calling the mother and impersonating an, an attorney, he got the unfiltered story from the mom, and he did it seamlessly. Right, right. This article goes on to say that that was sort of standard procedure. That was not unusual. And how, as I said earlier, that the Chicago newspapers have expanded their serious coverage of national and international news now tend to bury all but the most sensational crime stories on the back pages or more often the wastebasket. Quote, police beat news, explains one Daily News rewrite man, quote, is what runs on a dull day. So it's, it's kind of changed how that's done. More than one reporter during this era would telephone the scene of a crime and bark, quote, hello, this is Coroner Toman, only to be told, that's funny, so is this. <laughs> <laughs> and the article then goes on a little bit, too, to just explain how the City News Bureau, which was cooperative set up in 1890 by the Chicago Dailies, right. was the training ground for most of the city's police reporters. City News still billed itself in 1969 as the world's greatest journalism school. And one of its classrooms is the press room at the police department's detective bureau. As recently as 10 years ago, this room could have passed for an act one, scene one of the front page. As in the play, the focus of activity was a raucous poker game among reporters, policemen, bail bondsmen, and ambulance chasing lawyers. Somehow in the din of the police calls, cracking over squawk boxes and the clanging of the fire alarm, a reporter would hear a call of a homicide. Shout out the address. Whichever newspaperman failed to fill his flush would then check the crisscross, as they called it, a directory listing telephone numbers by address. Hello, the reporter would, would say sternly. This is Lieutenant Murphy from the Detective Bureau. We have a report of a shooting at this address. Is it true? Is he dead? Four times in the head, huh? Who shot him? You did? Now get a hold of yourself, dear. What did you, why did you do it? Messing around with another woman, huh? Did, did you catch him in bed or something? Were they naked? What did your boyfriend do for a living? A laborer, huh? Okay. The squad car will be right there. Goodbye. The reporter would then return to the game and mutter, cheap. Translation, no story because the motive was routine and the victim was a nobody. One thing about City News, 
Patrick, is I met some of the people who work for City News. Yeah. I would see them in City Hall a lot. And there was a motto that they were trained to live by. And that was, quote, if your mother says she loves you, check it out. <laughs> so it was just the facts, man. Just give me the facts. You know, and that was a great training ground for a lot of reporters that went on to really great things in on the national scene, even. Trust but verify, right? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it's uh, really interesting that the article went on and had a little more of a segment about how uh, would not the p- poker table reporters settled into saloons and over endless drinks and with endless embellishments swapped anecdotes, though less frequently and less suddenly. This still goes on in such press rooms as Ricardo's and Billy Goat's, a short order joint with a wall of fame displaying photographs of Chicago newsmen, some of which bear the inscription, quote, 3-0, right. or end of story. Right. So it's kind of interesting how here are the Billy Goat Tavern and Ricardo's. It's interesting they talk about the Billy Goat because in this episode, we talk more about the Billy Goat as well. That's right. We'll get into a little bit of that later. But yeah, it's it's very interesting. And the reporter who wrote this for Time Magazine in 1969 went back to the Detective Bureau newsroom and he interviewed a couple of the, the last 30-year veterans there. The place is virtually deserted during the late night dog watch. Quote, everything's changed, says Johnny Pasteur from the Tribune. Ever since the riots at the convention, the cops are very leery about talking to us. I put in for an early retirement next year. Things aren't like they used to be. Yeah, says Spurko, who is uh, Walter Spurko of the Sun-Times. Quote, we used to cabaret around with the coppers, play handball with them and everything. Hell, when I was working on the Dillinger case, I drove the goddamn car on a raid of one of the hideouts. <laughs> packed, a, packed a 38 and everything. Those were the sweet days. And he deals out a hand of solitaire. And that's the end of the article. Yeah. And to those guys, that was just 30, 35 years prior. John Dillinger, yeah. Right. And of course, the riots at the convention, they're talking about the 1968 Democratic Convention in Chicago. Yeah, in Chicago, right. That was like the year before this article was written, right? Yep. So I just thought that was kind of interesting. It starts to give people who just don't have a connection to the newspaper world and and that early development of journalism a little more flavor of what it's like how these guys operated right plus there was no national news there was no television well i guess there was radio but aside from the newspapers where else would you get your news from right right there were obviously magazines but the newspaper was immediate and because there were new editions coming out all the time Extra, extra, read all about it. You go grab the newest edition to see what's going on since you went to work. And circulation wars raged among these newspapers. So getting those scoops and having the latest news and the most important details were the way to keep your circulation up and, and ensure your job and, and, and your way of life. Right, right. And also you could tell a family by what newspaper they read. If a family read the Chicago Tribune, they were probably... Republicans, bankers, lawyers, establishment people. Maybe a little more well-to-do. Right. If they read the Sun-Times, they were left-leaning, Democrats, working class. 
and obviously the editorials would reflect that. And the American, which Romy worked for, was sort of that sensational tabloid type paper. Yes, right. Uh, in Chicago. Right. That's the one where you would get the, the coverage of the murders, the gangsters, the starlets, the scandals, all the good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> all the stuff that people really care about. Like the Tribune readers, they would probably pretend they didn't care about that, but they'd probably sneak, sneak a Chicago American in their paper, you know hey, there's nothing wrong with buying more than one paper in a day and, and check That's out right. what's going on in the seedy underbelly of the city that yes. you don't want to visit. I have a friend who lives in New York City, and he says everybody reads the New York Post. Right. Because it's tawdry and tabloid-ish, and, but everybody reads it because it has such great headlines. <laughs> so that's good. So let's get into it a little further uh, now that you have a little flavor of what the newspaper reporting was like in those days. And as luck would have it, Patrick, we have a recording of Harry Romanoff telling tales from the front page era. Yeah, it's some fascinating stuff. I don't know if anybody's ever really heard this other than some private individuals. I think you're right. I don't think anyone besides the people in the room when this was made have heard this. So we have a historic scoop, as it were, Chris, an exclusive. We do, and I think Harry Romanoff would be very pleased with this as the scoop. And speaking of the front page, you are about to hear, Patrick, someone ask Harry about a telegram he had just received from Buddy McHugh. Now, Buddy McHugh was the real-life reporter that inspired Heck and MacArthur's onstage reporter known as McHugh. So let's go to the tape. Harry, what is that, a telegram from somebody? Would you read it, please? Buddy McHugh. Good luck, oh. Harry. Sorry I couldn't make it tonight. Hope you make it soon. Who Hope you make it at 100. Oh, who wants to live 100, for God's sake? <laughs> uh, uh, Harry, don't you tell him, uh, tell him you're from the state's attorney's office? Isn't that oh, what you no. used to you say? You know, oh, no. that's the darnest thing I've got to live down. They said I was a coroner, a state's attorney, a chief of police, everything... It wasn't so. I simply had to make an addition, that's all, and nothing else. Now, what would you do and what will you fellas do? Outside only one instance among hundreds of them. And I think somebody used the story once. It was near deadline, about 15 minutes, I think, from deadline on the Saturday morning paper. We needed the line. All we got from the AP was then somewhere down straight, Six boys had been killed with several girls. That's all we knew. I called down there. I told them I was the American. I said, please, I only have 15 minutes to make a decision. Please fill me in here. And the fellow said, go to hell. I called back and asked <laughs> for somebody else and pleaded again. This time, whoever was the coroner down there or the state's attorney, or the principal of the school. Again, oh, the hell with you. Don't bother us. I called the principal who was there. And I didn't think an educator would say it, but he said, you go to hell. I got trouble enough. Well, I was mad, and now it was about 12 minutes to the deadline. I called up. Somehow or other, somebody got the idea that I was the general counsel for the Illinois Central. I don't know how they did. <laughs> somebody got it? Immediately. Immediately. The sheriff who answered 
Mr. Counsel, here is what happened. Your man is here. We're taking good care of him. <laughs> now here, here's the names, here's their ages, here they were coming from their prom, and they decided to go out on a beer party. That's all. Now, I'll let you talk to the coroner. He insists he wants to talk to you. I had to spend five minutes to be sure I talked to every one of them, and finally, my own general counsel for the area got on from the Illinois Central. He said, I want you to know we're cleaning this up in a hurry. You don't need to worry. I said, well, then that's the case. All right. Goodbye, gentlemen. When Romy tells the story about the post-prom accident, yeah. he says, down start, it doesn't sound quite like down state. And so I thought maybe breaking in, we might just insert the basic story. Yes. Okay, here's the article from the Chicago Sun-Times, dated Sunday, May 17th, 1959. It's a special of the Sun-Times, Mattoon, Illinois. The tragic aftermath of the Shelbyville, Illinois, high school senior prom claimed its seventh victim Saturday. Only Ivan Moon, 22, driver of a car carrying eight young people who had just left the dance, remained alive in Memorial Hospital here and his chances of survival were considered slim. Six were killed instantly when a Chicago-New Orleans passenger train, the Illinois Central's Louisiane, plowed broadside into the car near here and demolished it. Young Moon's date died in the hospital several hours after the accident. The driver's sister, Irene Moon, 16, was among those killed instantly. Also killed were Jerry Hill, 18, Judy Keene, 18, Jerry Hayes, 19, and Lorraine, 17, and Lyle Pfeiffer, 18, brother and sister. All but Hayes and Ivan Moon attended the high school of, of Shelbyville, a community of 4,600 people about 25 miles from Mantoon. Hayes was a resident of Woodlawn, about 100 miles south of Shelbyville. Four of the students, Hill, Miss Thomas, Ms. Pfeiffer and Ms. Keene, who was 18 on Friday, were to be graduated this spring. There were no witnesses to the crash at the unguarded crossing, and the sole survivor was in a coma. John Moon, a brother of Irene and Ivan, said he believed the party was coming here after the dance to visit a restaurant. The car belonged to Moon's father, a farmer near Shelbyville. The Louisiana was southbound and slowing for its approach into Mantoon when it hit the packed car two miles north of here. Observers said the train opened the car like a tin can, pitching most of the victims over a hundred yard area. Coles County Deputy Coroner J.E. Caudell said frenzy spread through Shelbyville. When police and hospital personnel attempting to identify the dead, who still were in their formal gowns and suits, telephoned parents to ask if their children had arrived home. I have two girls, Caudill said. All I could think about when they called me was that the girls weren't home yet. The train was undamaged and none of the passengers was injured. An inquest will be held after a statement is taken from the engineer William Ward of Champaign. The bodies were badly mangled and identification in some instances, was made through class rings. Wow. Pretty depressing story. Tragic. And, and you know, later then we also found 
an article in the Chicago Daily Tribune from June 28th of 1959. And just to kind of give a flavor of what newspaper reporting was like, they went into like a blow-by-blow action and background of each of the kids, how they got picked up that night, what they did at the prom, the whole process of then two groups ended up getting together and going in one car and then uh, coming down a dirt road parallel to the tracks and then, I guess, crossing over just at the time when the train was coming, which was actually running late. Yeah, it was very interesting how they they talked about how like one of the people killed their dog used to wait for them. And of course they reported the dog was still waiting days later. And one girl's horse would get greeted after school every day and would come to the fence right by the bus stop, you know, just those little details that just put it all together and sort of sensational, but yet, you know, real life and, and the, that detail in the papers is just not there these days like it was in that day and age. Yeah, it was also very narrative because they juxtaposed the prom with the speeding train. As they drove out of the prom, the Louisiane was speeding through Champagne. It was 73 miles away. It was, you know, it's like that. It was like building tension in a narrative form. Right. And which it, I must say is it's rather compelling. And and the train was running like 15 or 17 minutes late. And they juxtaposed it. They juxtaposed the, the two stories. The train. Yeah. Here's a bit that I thought was interesting. They talk about the end of the prom. Yeah. They had a king and queen, of course. Then the king danced with the queen and the royal attendants danced. And soon they were followed onto the floor by 200 others. For most kids, this was the end of the prom. And this was the last dance. The song was... Moments to remember. It was now 11.15 p.m. The day we tore the goalpost down We will have these moments to remember Kind of a strange coincidence. The decorations in the prom were all in the Mardi Gras theme which was interesting because this was May, Mardi Gras usually in February, March. And they would be killed by a train called the Louisiana. Headed to New Orleans, ultimately. Right, it was headed to New Orleans, yeah. yeah. Just, just something I noticed. Well, the other piece that I found very interesting was they had details that both uh, parents and adults that knew the two boys that were driving the cars, you know, they made a big point of the fact that they were not drinking. Yes. The kids went out after the prom to quote party, but it was basically, they went to a hamburger stand and had root beers and had something to eat and then were heading home. So there wasn't, as far as we can tell, and the article is pretty specific. The parents implicitly trusted the two boys that were driving that they didn't drink. They, it was not, there was not alcohol involved in this. Right, right. And in the story, Romy talks about a beer party. But again, he was telling the story several years later. and Yeah, about a decade later. Yeah, maybe forgot that part. 
Right. Right. The only beer they were drinking was root beer. According to the article, they ordered hamburgers and giant root beers and were served within five minutes. Yeah. They left soon after. Eight to the car, four in the front seat, four in the back. A girl sat on a lap in the front seat to Ivan Moon's right. By the way, not that it matters, but this was pre-seatbelt era. Right. You couldn't get four people in the front seat of a car legally nowadays. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it, And then interesting in doing some of the research, too, there, there was a movement then after this, particularly in that area, to have something wholesome, something safe for kids to do after the prom. And that continues to this day because this is a, a tragedy that can often happen post-prom and especially worse if, uh, or, or troublesome if then alcohol gets involved. Well, you're quite right. And this story was published right before the 4th of July. And the author even said, this is kind of a warning about the dangers of driving and trains. And perhaps that's why they had so much detail because they had a couple months to really dig in and research it. And that train being part of the Illinois Central also ties in why right. uh, Romy may have impersonated or somebody was mistaken him <laughs> for the the uh, general counsel for the Illinois Central. Right, exactly. Well, the, and the paper raises an interesting point here. It says, home in Shelbyville lay to the west. Ivan Moon drove north. Why? We don't yet know. Yeah. In Shelbyville, they will be asking these questions through an eternity of pain. In Shelbyville Sunday, Jerry Hill's dog was still waiting. On Monday, Irene's horse met the school bus as usual. On Monday, the day she was to be installed in the National Honor Society, Irene Moon was buried. On Monday, nine days before graduation, Judy Keene was buried in her graduation dress next to her best friend, Dorothy Thomas. Lyle Pfeiffer and his sister, Lorraine, were buried outside Shelbyville. Lyle's college roommate, Jerry Hayes, was buried in Woodlawn. The delegation from their fraternity had to split into two groups to attend the funerals. Jerry Hill was buried in his new blue suit. That's just so somber and heartbreaking. And then Ivan Moon, the sole survivor, lived. He lay in the hospital with a skull fracture and other injuries for a week. He kept asking his mother, Mama, what happened? She said, you were hurt, Ivan. Don't you remember? He didn't remember. After a week, his minister and doctor told him what had happened. For a moment, his eyes widened and quickly clouded over again in a dull glaze. The doctor called it conversion hysteria. The doctor said he had developed an amnesia for the accident. The doctor said maybe a psychiatrist could help him remember. And if the doctors can help him remember, the night his girl, his sister, and his friends were killed in his car, how will Ivan Moon then forget? And when? And where? All right. On that sober note, let's finish hearing the... Well, how about this? Let's do this. But at the time of the phone call with Romy trying to get answers, he knew none of this. All he knew was that there were dead prom goers and he had 15 minutes to get the answers and the clock was ticking to deadline. 
Right, and you can imagine kind of pressure, and he's trying to hold this facade of being the general counsel for the Illinois Central, and then they you know, want to pass him on to other people to talk to. Meanwhile, the clock is ticking. Right, right. He has a job to do. He, he has a, a pencil in one hand, his phone in the other, and he needs those names to get the scoop. We made the deadline. Now, what else could I have done under those circumstances? I tried honestly to be an honest newspaper man. It's a fact. Now, if in some... Did you end up by saying, uh, now, if I can be of any help to you, please call me? Yes. Yeah. And as many as called the chief of police got and said, you asked me to call you, if I needed something, well, uh, here is this. And the chief always would say, yes, I think I know who, who was there for me this evening. Every time. But always tried to be honest about those things. That's all. And never at any other time be anything but that. The voice of Harry Romanoff. Patrick, you can see why Romy was able to talk his way over the phone into getting the facts of the story. I mean, he has a very commanding air about him. To wheedle some information out of a junior staff member, right? Right. What did he have to lose? Mm-hmm. I mean, it takes some real cojones to just go ahead and take your shot and get somebody to spill the beans. And I kind of think, too, in this era of telephones being an integral tool to these newspapermen, there was no such thing as caller ID. So it rang, and you didn't know who it was. And you explain that to young people today, and they have no clue. Not to sound like I'm 90 years old, but I tell my children, when I was a kid and the phone rang, you didn't know who was on the other end of it. And they just look at me and <laughs> walk out of the room. Well, that's the thing, like... There wasn't all this technology that we have today, and it was all analog. It was copper wires connecting you to a phone somewhere else in the world. So when it rang, that was the notification that somebody was trying to reach you. But who and what about and from where? You had no idea. True story. I was in college, freshman year. The phone was in the hallway. One phone for the whole floor. Yeah. And it was ringing. Ring, 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 ring. I was sleeping. I woke up. This phone must have been ringing 50, 60 times. And I got up. I threw on a robe. I walked into the hallway. I picked up the phone. I go, hello. And the voice in the other end said, Mr. Lynch? And I said, yes. Yes, hi. This is Professor Bremer. Oh, hi, Professor. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. By the way, Mr. Lynch, your final exam began... 30 minutes ago. Oh, shit. And I went, oh, my God. And I flew out of there. I think I had pants on. <laughs> and ran into the main hall there and grabbed the blue book. Yeah, some kind of essay test if you're using a blue book. And somehow, with the time left, I managed to not only take the final exam, but I actually did rather well on it. But it would have been a total disaster if it wasn't for the ringing phone. Thank you, Professor Bremer. You saved me. Now, this next segment is about how Romanoff used his power of persuasion with the phone to help his boss and publisher, Lloyd Went, get to an airport to get to flight. We don't know when he calls the airline. No, we just, we don't know. Yeah, we don't know. okay. Um, but that fits with sort of the antics. 
by the way, Lloyd Wendt wrote four books with Herman Kogan, the father of Rick Kogan. Yeah, our current newspaper man from the Tribune. Let's go to the tape. Wendt don't know it, but I once, and I'll tell him the story now. He once was on his way to Puerto Rico. He won't mind this now, I'm sure. Somehow or other, the car that was to pick him up failed him. He was still home. The plane was going to leave in six minutes, and God only knows he lived so far away from the plane. And he said, Romy, what'll I do? I said, that's all right. Get ready. If the, he said, yes, the car is here now. Well, he said, will you help me? I said, we'll do the best we can. So I called the airline. I found out that the plane cannot be held from anybody. I went through the dispatcher, I went through the various people in the place, nothing doing. I called back and I said, this is the American Medical Society. We've got an important package going for Puerto Rico. The serum has got to be delivered. You hold that plane. Yes, sir. He made the plane, and you know, I forgot to call back to let the plane go on. So 10 minutes after he boarded the thing, I finally woke up and I said, the serum can't be made in time. We'll make the next play. Let it go. <laughs> Patrick, this next story is about Harold McCormick. Now, does that name ring a bell? Yes, McCormick does ring a bell. There's a couple of McCormicks in Chicago that I know of. I think a lot of it, though, goes back to the McCormick Reaper Works that was the first mechanized harvesting equipment, which then later became International Harvester. Patrick, you got a gold star. You are absolutely right. Harold McCormick was the son of Cyrus McCormick, who invented the mechanical Reaper, which had the power to break the very hard prairie side of the Midwest and revolutionized farming. And Cyrus McCormick was the founder of International Harvester, the company that still exists today. And Cyrus's son, Harold, was born into a world of great wealth in Chicago. In 1895, Harold married Edith Rockefeller, daughter of John D. Rockefeller, the co-founder of Standard Oil. Maladita. We're talking real money, Patrick. I think those are circles you and I don't ever travel in, Chris. No. Yeah. People might find us at Chief O'Neill's having a Guinness in the corner, but we're not at the Grand Ball with the Rockefellers and the McCormicks. They might consider us a little uncouth and beneath them. But we also would have more fun at Chief O'Neill's too. So. Yeah. Anyway, Harold and Edith lived at 1000 North Lakeshore Drive, and they were the richest people in Chicago. Harold was also a trustee of the Rockefeller Foundation, trustee of the University of Chicago, and later in life, the chairman of International Harvester. Big money, celebrity, the head of Chicago society. There you go, yeah. Edith Rockefeller would donate 83 acres of land, which was the foundation of the Brookfield Zoo. Ah, I did not know that. So Harold McCormick was rich and famous, which meant he was fair game for the press. Here is an interesting story about him. There's one poor family I felt sorry for. That's poor Harold McCormick and his family and all their troubles. I never need to say that I was the coroner, the state's attorney, or anything else. Harold Pudsoe was beset with trouble all of his life. 
There was Edith and her romance with Crin. There was different things. The crowning glory of it all came whenever I needed to find out whether it was a divorce case in the making or anything else, I simply asked him, if you can tell me, I'll know that you're telling the truth. If you refuse the talk, I still know it's correct. But if you absolutely deny it, then I will not print it. God only knows he went through it from time to time in all of his troubles, but always a decent soul every time we did it. Only one exception. We got a call one time, and you could tell that the man on the phone must have been a young intern. It's from the old Wesley Hospital. And the man said, if I tell you a story about Mr. Harold McCormick, what is it worth to you? Well, I always used, do you see the diamond ring on my finger, although I never <laughs> And he said, yes. Can you see how much it's worth? No. Well, that, neither can I tell. All right. Harold McCormick, if you'll send a man over to me, I'll be playing tennis and simply say, Frank, I'll answer and come over to you. I sent over somebody and said, Frank. And he told the amazing story that a whole floor had been given over to Harold McCormick, who was in the old Wesley Hospital. Why was he there? He didn't know, but he knew it's something about an operation in Voronoff picked up my ears. Voronoff, after all, was that famous man <laughs> who made a man for you. <laughs> I looked at Austin O'Malley, who was near me. I said, Austin, we've got to find out whether this is romance. He's got our $25. God help him. <laughs> well, I said, let's go there. We went there at midnight. The night superintendent was on. Somehow or other, he seemed to think that we were the commissioner's office. <laughs> then I don't know how. I never, and I said, you've got records that are not here, and that's a violation. Remember that now. Show me your undercover records. Who have you got there? He began to cry, and he said, well, you mustn't tell. It'd be my job. It's Harold McCormick. You're here on an operation. I said, who's his doctor? Les Benazzi. Les Benazzi was then the bad who was doing the Voronoff treatment. We still couldn't take a chance. You must let us go up and see him. Oh, my God, it would mean my job. All we want to do is look. That's all. We'll say nothing. I said to O'Malley, I promised I wouldn't say anything, but you didn't promise. So <laughs> the door opened of this place. A man looked up and said, yes, sort of a weak voice. And Austin O'Malley said, Mr. McCormick. He said, yes. That's all we needed, you see. We had verified, but not everything. Now it was to find out what happened to Mr. McCormick. We got on the phone, and we had a tap wire of Dr. Lespinazzi's home. We then called McCormick's secretary and said, Lespinazzi is operating on McCormick. Will you tell us why? She said, oh, no, he's not even in the hospital. You're wrong. He's in Santa Barbara. But we had the tap on downstairs at Irving Park and Sheridan Road where Lespinazzi lived, We're in down below. And we knew what happened. She called Lespinazzi. Lespinazzi called Fowler right away who screeched. Who told him? Who told him you were going to have a Voronoff operation? 
and that you had a boy who you paid $500 from. Who told him? I didn't know anything about a boy $500 at that time, <laughs> but it grew. Finally, we got the best part of it all. In those days, you normally had tipsters like the cablegram man of the Western Union, the butler in some homes such as McCormick, and we found out that his dear love was in Paris. The cable man said, we just got a t cablegram we're sending to her, and it says, Operation Success. We'll see you soon. Love, Harold, you see? <laughs> so there's another link in the thing. Ganowalska. Patrick, I thought we'd interject here to give some background about Ganowalska, whose name Harry Romanov just mentioned in this story. Yeah, that's a name, Ganowalska. Sounds Polish? It is Polish. Gana Walska was a Polish-born opera singer, a raven-haired beauty with dark eyes, and had a talent for meeting and marrying millionaires. Okay. She met Harold McCormick, and he fell head over heels for her. The only problem was he was still married to Edith Rockefeller. Small complication. McCormick and Gana Walska were married August 11th, 1922. But at the time of this story that Romanoff is recounting, they were not yet married. Mm. Scandalous. Yes. At the time, McCormick was the most prominent patron of the Chicago Opera Company, and so he used his influence to promote Gana Walska's career. However, there was only one problem, Patrick. Chris, what was that? What was the problem? She couldn't sing. Oh, an opera singer that couldn't sing? She couldn't sing, Patrick. A music critic of the time wrote that her voice was, quote, thin, sharp, wiry, metallic. Oh. By the way, what does metallic mean? Did she sing like a robot or something? I don't know. It sounds like nails on the chalkboard. And it wasn't just the critics who thought her singing was awful, but audiences too. While performing in Havana, Cuba, Walska's singing was so off-key, the audience began throwing rotten vegetables at her. Oh, my God. I can imagine a black tie affair for the opera, and they're throwing vegetables. Who brought in the rotten vegetables? They must have known she was going to be bad. Maybe that's a thing in Cuba. I don't know, but I kind of like it. By the way, Orson Welles knew the story about Walska's terrible performance in Havana. And when he co-wrote and directed Citizen Kane, the character of Susan Alexander, the lousy opera singer and wife of Charles Foster Kane, was inspired by Gana Walska and Harold McCormick's promotion of her career. Yeah, wow. Art imitates life, apparently. There you go. Anyway, let's go back to the tape where Harry Romanoff talks about what a terrible opera singer Gana Walska was. Harold McCormick. Remember, he was supporting opera in those days. And for that, Campanini one time stopped the rehearsal and screamed at Gana Walska. You are E.P. You never will be a singer. You are no good. And he had to be fired for it, too, because... <laughs> Anyhow, we finally pieced, piece by piece, the story until we knew it was definite, that he had paid $500 to a poor soul on Skid Row, but a very virulent and good boy. And they had transplanted, you see, a testicle to <laughs> McCormick. With it, I think it was Howie or else Carson decided they needed a picture. Of the transplant. No, <laughs> so I said, I won't go that far. But I said, I'll get you a good picture. And we got a picture from his butler, 
that showed her with all her raven locks, you know, down, strewn down. It ran three columns all the way down, you know, at the story. Now, now comes the funny part of it all. After it was all done, we decided we were going to ask her for an interview, whether she was going to marry him, other things about it, Janowalska in Paris. And we had an INS man, Forbes Fairburn. We called him and told him to go over there and get an interview with him. She had a beautiful home there. She had a Russian effect of Cossacks, you know, but their stripes and everything else. He went in there. He said, Dear Ghana, are you going to marry him? He has a successful operation, everything else. She muttered something. It was in Russian. And two men appeared, you know, these Cossacks. They lifted up four by their arms, carried him, dumped him outside, you see, just bodily, you see, and the thing. And that poor McCormick family, honestly, even to the moment we got a tip for which we only paid five dollars, <laughs> that he was going to marry his nurse, you see, he was Santa Barbara. I called there. I didn't lie at any time to him. He knew me by this <laughs> And I said, we have this information. Now I know that if you're going to deny it, if it's not true, you'll say so. I also know that if you don't wish to talk about it, it's also true. But if you deny it, it stops right there. You're going to marry Ada Wilson, are you? That was his nurse. He says, I am not saying a word. Well, I said, that's what I wanted. You are. <laughs> <laughs> Stories like that, honestly, had its moments. And maybe sometimes you felt sorry for the person. And other times you felt, what a darn fool. But you're public property. What are you going to do? Kind of thing. Patrick, Romy mentions the Voronoff procedure, and I just wanted to clarify what this means. This was Dr. Sergei Voronoff, who was a celebrity doctor of his day. However, today we would call him a quack. Harold McCormick was a very wealthy person, and he could afford to recruit a young man to give up his testicle so that an aging McCormick could become more virile. Oh my God. The problem with this method is that most people don't have the money to get a ball don <laughs> donation, <laughs> right? I mean, it's, you know, that's not something you can get at the store. I would imagine the donor list is quite small. Yes. And difficult to come by. Yeah. So Dr. Voronoff turned to the practice of xenotransplantation, the fancy name for transplanting a monkey testicle to a human. Oh my. And this quacky concept got a lot of publicity during the 1920s and 30s. The press wouldn't refer to it as a monkey testicle. They were far too prudish for that. Instead, they would say, quote, monkey gland. Mm. In fact, Patrick, the music that is playing in the background as we talk is the song Monkey Doodle Doo written by none other than Irving Berlin of White Christmas fame. The song was performed in the Marx Brothers movie, The Coconuts, and one of the lyrics is, quote, if you're too old for dancing, get yourself a monkey gland. <laughs> well, in general, we're talking a lot of monkey business anyway on this, obviously. <laughs> you know, you can't make this stuff up. I would have never guessed anything like that in a million years. What a story. And Harry Romanoff broke it. He got the scoop on it. 
Amazing. And talk about a way to sell papers, right? Oh, yeah. You know they sold a lot of papers. As Romy tells the story, I've listened to it a couple times, he goes right through it pretty quickly, but there's these multiple sources that he's touching upon to bring the details together. For instance, he also talks about having an INS man. That stands for Immigration and Naturalization Service. (laughs) It's basically, you know, people that handle customs and immigration overseas are stationed. It would be sort of, I think, sort of like the Foreign Service. And so I'm assuming that there was somebody there in Paris that they had as a contact for other reporting and that overseas. Sure. And so they called up that guy to then go in and needle Walska and see what she has to say to get some more details. And remember the Cossacks threw him out. Yes, yes. Right. Interesting enough, Harold McCormick and Donna Walska were married in Paris. Ah, so Harold went to her. Yes, yes. But uh, I thought it was interesting how they had the butler in on it. They had the telephone operator in on it. Everyone was giving Romy tips. Yeah. And the staff, I should say, the butlers were probably the best tippers, best source of information. Well, you mentioned that, and it makes me think, and I'm, I'm sure this is probably pretty accurate, that these newspaper men, and particularly the editors who had been in the game for a long time, would cultivate these people that would provide information, tips, informants, as it were, if you might call them that, that then they would go to, over the years and decades, when they needed some specific information about a certain area or location or a hotel or somebody who was important, would be quite the web of information gathering that they'd have at their fingertips and and why they'd talk about how Romy could fabricate a story just by getting on the phone. Well, I asked somebody about that story about how Romy has the phone tapped at the mansion of the doctor. And apparently that was not illegal in 1920, 21. I mean, later it became illegal, but yeah. So that was kind of interesting. So if you knew somebody at the phone company, that was That was key, too. When I first moved to Chicago area back in the early 90s, I worked at the research center at Northwestern in Evanston. I helped out with some IT work. And part of the the process was punching in these phone wires to the network that they used to connect the computers. And I've done a little bit of work on phones in the past when we had hardwired phones. So it's not hard to then take two wires if you know where to connect them in and tap in or wire somebody's phone and then string that wire to someplace remote or whatnot to be able to listen in on what's going on. Okay, Patrick, the FBI. (laughs) Jeez. I was in no official capacity. (laughs) Uh, That's funny. Yeah, yeah. So... You know, in those days, it would be really simple once you got those wires run to then, you know, have somebody listening. You'd probably have to pay somebody to monitor the phone. Well, I just looked it up, Patrick. It became illegal to tap somebody's phone in 1934. Ah, okay. So 
Romy wasn't breaking any laws when uh, they were trying to get the scoop on McCormick. Right. So you might say a little bit nefarious, but not illegal. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Well, and they they also, some of these articles that we saw, oftentimes, you know, they needed a photo, right? Yes. And so it was not unusual to hear about these reporters purloining a photo from somebody's bureau or dresser so that they have an image to go with the story. And it might sometimes mean going into a house uninvited. Well, yes. Is that breaking in? I don't know. Oftentimes doors were left unlocked that day and age, but it was not unusual. Patrick, we now come to one of my favorite Harry Romanoff stories, that of the mad sculptor, Robert Irwin. I don't know this one, Chris. Robert Irwin was a gifted sculptor who had the talent to train with renowned artist Laredo Taft at his Midway Studios in Chicago in the 1920s. As you know, Taft did a lot of the statues for the World's Fair of 1893 and, of course, the famous alma mater statue on the quad of the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. In Chicago, he's known for his statues, the Fountain of Time in Washington Park and the Fountain of the Great Lakes outside the Art Institute. Mm. So this young pupil, Robert Irwin, he traveled to Chicago to apprentice with Laredo Taft. Irwin showed Taft a bust he had made of Charles Lindbergh. Laredo Taft said it was the best sculpture of Lindbergh he had ever seen. This was high praise, of course, coming from the master sculptor of the Columbian Exposition. So Irwin was very talented and studied under Taft. The only problem, Patrick, was that Irwin was crazy. Uh-oh. A few years after being mentored by Taft, Irwin moved to New York City and roomed with the Gideon family. They took on boarders in their modest home. Irwin had an obsession with one of the daughters, Ethel. The other daughter, Veronica, was a beautiful model. After leaving New York City to attend divinity school at St. Lawrence College in Canton, New York, Irwin returned to New York City after getting expelled due to flying into uncontrollable rages and attacking people. Mm. So he arrives back in the city and he makes a beeline to the Gideon's new apartment. It just so happens to be the Saturday before Easter, 1936. He runs into Mrs. Gideon outside the new apartment. Mrs. Gideon, the matriarch of the family. And she invites him in. Irwin was there to see Ethel. Mrs. Gideon said Ethel wasn't there, but if he wanted to come up to the apartment and wait, that was fine with her. So that's what they did. He's sitting in the apartment. It's getting late. Mrs. Gideon asks Irwin to leave because now it's like midnight. It's time to go, right? Sure. So what does Irwin do? He grabs her by the neck and chokes her to death. Holy smokes. An Englishman. Frank Burns, who boarded at the Gideon's apartment, was asleep when Irwin entered his room and drove an ice pick into the back of his neck, killing him. Wow. Then Irwin went to Veronica's room, the model, and waited for this party girl to return. She did, very late that night. And as she entered the bedroom, Irwin began to choke her. Slowly, over two hours, Veronica knew it was Irwin, and she spoke his name, and that set him off, and he killed her right there. So, the newspapers went crazy due to this Easter killing spree. Irwin was not discovered as a murderer until he had already skipped town. 
It was the biggest story of 1936. Multiple killings and by different methods. It's crazy. Oh, absolutely. And also the killer's on the loose. Where could he attack next? So, you know, this sold a lot of newspapers. Right. So this is about the time that Harry Romanoff got interested in this East Coast crime. Again, this is New York. He had a premonition that maybe Irwin was heading west. So he hatched a plan to get in on the action. Let's pick up the story about how Romy got involved with the story. Harry, I just want to ask you one question. You remember uh, Irwin, the mad dog killer? Yeah. Uh, he called the Tribune, I think it was, and uh, they hung he up said on. he wanted to give himself up, and the copy boy said, go on, take another drink and go back yes, to bed. And so he, and he called, called you. And there again, Hunch in psychology plays a part in all of your lives as it did in mine. We had a $5,000 reward from the Hearst organization by Knox, the general superintendent then, our general manager of Hearst. He said, uh, can the money go, can it go to anyone? I said, why, sure. We talked along, and finally he said, all right, will you meet me in front of the Art Institute? I knew we had Irvin. Why? Because we had used a little bit of a story, trying to get in on this wonderful story of the man who killed and was an artist, killed the... Mother and the daughter in a very famous case in New York. It printed just a little bit of a story, locally, trying to get in on this New York story, that the man had one time been a disciple, Laredo Taft. This was Laredo Taft's monument. We ran over there. We got him. He still had the white suit on. Put him into the office, talking to him. I said, just keep talking to him. I went looking for a man named Raffles. Raffles was a maker of cones. Radio cones, you know, it's installed. And he had once hired this fellow who had been a disciple of Laredo Taft. Mrs. Raffle said, you know, he's over there with the Becker boys. You mean the divorce boys? Yes, over the Congress. They always play cards on a Saturday night. I called Raffles up there. I said, please don't say a word. It's very important to you and to I. You step downstairs for just one moment. This was in the Congress. He did. I introduced myself. I want you to get away for just 10 minutes. We'll drive you right back. Only I want you to swear you'll never say a word about this until after I tell you. He says, I promise. I'm a good businessman. I said, come with me. I opened the door where we had him in the managing editor's office. And as the door opened up, it creaked a little. The man in the white suit looked at Raffles. Raffles looked at him. Irwin said, Raffles. Raffles said, Irwin, I closed the door. I knew we had the story. Now, the rest of the story came this way. The papers began to scream. For four days, we held Irwin. So, Patrick, what happens is Romanoff has Irwin, the killer, pulled up in a hotel for four days. They're getting the story. They're getting everything about these murders. At the expense of the newspaper, I assume. Right. Meanwhile, the police commissioner swore out warrants for their arrest because they know that they're holding this known fugitive. Harboring a fugitive. Right. And so eventually Irwin flies out of Chicago Municipal Airport to New York, and he's accompanied by one of Romanoff's fellow reporters, Austin O'Malley. So this hits the paper, right? Mm-hmm. Now, what's funny about it is in the play, the front page, that's one of the things that the reporters do is they grab a murderer and they interview him and hold him for a few days. That's part of the plot. 
so now this is really happening, right? <laughs> so right. the reporters asked MacArthur and Heck about this. MacArthur said about Chicago reporting, quote, after I left, it seemed to calm down, he said. I thought it had reformed. As an alumni, I'm delighted it has not. And then Ben Hecht, who was at the time the highest paid screenwriter in Hollywood, he's quoted as saying, they stole our plot, our best plot, <laughs> in mock rage, of course. So again, art imitating life, or in this case, life imitating art. So Irwin was indicted on three counts of first degree murder. He got the $5,000 reward money, which Romanoff told Irwin he could keep. Irwin hired the best defense attorney money could buy, Sam Leibowitz, who had defended Al Capone and the Scottsboro Boys in Alabama. He began working immediately on an insanity defense, saying that his client was, quote, crazy as a bed bug, unquote. But it was the allure of a pair of pants, Patrick, that would seal Irwin's fate. Even though a jury had been selected and the trial was about to start, Robert Irwin took a plea to plead guilty to three counts of second-degree murder and by doing so, not go to the electric chair. Also, as part of that deal, he would have a pair of pants returned to him from a suitcase he had stored at Grand Central Station. What was so important about those pants, I wonder? They were his, because what he did is he killed these people, and then he took his luggage and he stored it at Grand Central Station, one of those lockers, and then he, he took off. He actually wound up in Cleveland. Let me just go back a minute. So are you saying he changed his clothes from the murder and those were in that suitcase that then he put in the locker? No, no. These were just like his clothes. I think for whatever reason, he ditched his suitcase of clothes at Grand Central and then he probably fled with the clothes on his back. It sounds like he was kind of a nut. Maybe it's just there was a particular pair of pants that was his favorite. It might have been some kind of a personal quirk. Yeah, I think what happened was he was crazy and they said, look, if you plead guilty, we'll give you your pants back. And he was like, deal. <laughs> so, it's very strange the story behind that story has got to be interesting i don't know what it is though yeah well Irwin was sentenced to 139 years in prison and he died of cancer in prison in 1975 wow i still think this would make a hell of a movie no one has made one yet i think it might be just because to explain the lack of technology today's audience would be just lost because like well well, why did they just look at caller ID? You know, why, why didn't, why, you know, all this, why did they just track his cell phone? Then they know where these, there's these reporters are keeping him. So funny. How about people walk out of the theater saying, he pled guilty because of a pair of pants? Right, <laughs> right. What's the deal with that? <laughs> guy's a nut. Why did I waste two and a half hours on the pants movie? This guy's an idiot. Oh, anyway. <laughs> Yes, I think some things just won't translate quite so well to the modern screen, maybe. I don't know. Let's talk about the weather. Patrick, I will admit that I'm a bit of a weather nerd. Chris, really? I check my weather app on my phone. I'm interested in humidity. I'm constantly viewing radar to see what storms are threatening on the horizon. Do you do that? On occasion. I, I'm usually more worried about the temperature, obviously. But now that I think about all the sailing that I've done and then the, the weather apps or wind apps that I have on my phone, I probably should come out of the closet and explain that I am rather a weather nerd, especially when it relates to sailing conditions. Yes. If you're a sailor, boy, it can be the difference between life and death. But you know, Patrick, weather back in the day, it could be a real problem not having 
good weather reports. For example, there was an incident on March 18th, 1925, called the Tri-State Tornado Event, where tornadoes developed and were on the ground from Missouri into Illinois and into Indiana. Wow. And killed 751 people. Holy smokes. With 2,298 people injured. Of course, there was no radar then. So a storm could just blow up. It's a sunny day. And then you go inside, you walk out, and the sky is black, and there's a tornado bearing down on you. I mean, this is literally what was happening in this tri-state tornado event. Line of sight might be your only defense. Yeah, that's crazy. So it just shows how we take Doppler radar for granted. I mean, Doppler allows meteorologists, they can literally look inside a storm. Sure. So one of Harry Romanoff's colleagues recalled a storm that blew out of nowhere when he and Romanoff were working on a Saturday, trying to put the Sunday paper together. And because of the change in the weather, Romanoff wanted to scrap the front page and cover the storm. To get back to the office, and he wants to tell a little. He wants to tell a little story about Romy. Hey, Gene, you know, it started with Romy about thirty years ago. We all used to work six days a week. This was before unions. I don't know what, but I was with Romy every Saturday night for years and years, and I was with him the last Saturday night. It was the one time that Romanoff was frustrated. Remember the last Saturday night you worked? Not too long. All right. You're telling this. Story. Okay. You're telling you know, we we were sitting Saturday night and. Uh, putting out the big Sunday paper and everything else. It was about five in the afternoon, and uh, they already had the Sunday paper all set the first edition. They didn't want to change it, you know. It was made up Thursday, and that's the way it's going to be. <laughs> what happened was this? So then we started getting calls from the south side. One woman called, said there was a big wind, tore down the house. We figured, well, she was drunk. <laughs> you know. Then we got another call. A guy he says, look, he says, maybe I was drinking too much beer. I got home from work, but a body flew by my house and landed on the roof. I told Romanoff, he says, Jesus, you can't. Finally, we got more and more calls like this, and he turned to the Sunday editor, and he says, you're going to have to replay. The Sunday editor looked at him and says, we can't do that. i got to call uh, down to the suburbs and you see the managing editor and so forth and so on. <laughs> Finally, there's about 18 people dead, and Romanoff is pulling a copy out of Kelly's typewriter, you know, <laughs> putting his stories and sidebars and pictures and everything else. The guy wouldn't do anything with the Sunday paper. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry, Finally, I called the weather bureau. I says, what the hell's happening? You know, the weather bureau says nothing. It's a nice sunny afternoon. <laughs> I says, for Christ's sake, can you look out the window? And he says, no, there's tornado funnels on the south side, you know, killing more and more people. Finally, Womanoff called the, uh, somebody or Hearst, and he made him replay. Yeah. And he walked out of the place. That was the last Saturday night Romanoff worked. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry? <All right>. So, Patrick, that was the last Saturday Harry Romanoff worked at the paper. And the day of the week, Saturday, is a good clue as to when this occurred. So I did some research, Patrick. And the gold standard of Chicago weather, of course, is Tom Skilling. I found an article called Ask Tom, where someone wrote in and asked about a tornado that destroyed their school on the south side of Chicago. And Tom Skilling wrote back, Your memory is correct. An F2 tornado struck Chicago's south side around 5 p.m. on Saturday, March 4, 1961. It developed near 91st and Hoyne, cutting a long path of destruction as it moved northeast across the city, finally moving out into Lake Michigan near 68th Street. Their tornado killed one, injured 115, damaged or destroyed 3,000 homes, and caused total damages of about $7 million. Two schools sustained damage. Thank God it was a Saturday hitting those schools. Several injuries occurred when a cafe near 87th and Loomis was unroofed, trapping a group of diners. 
a man was thrown against a building by the storm and was the lone fatality. Some people, Patrick, have asked me if we're going to do a podcast about gangsters of this era. You know, Al Capone, Machine Gun Kelly and the like. Chicago. Bang, bang. <laughs> yes. And you know what? It's It's been done a lot with movies, documentaries, TV shows. So I don't know how much we can add to that. But since we are exploring the world of journalism in the 1920s, of course, we're going to touch on the gangsters of that era because that's who the reporters were covering. Yeah. I remember when I was writing a history of Midway Airport, I was going through some press clippings that my family had about my grandfather, Pierce O'Carroll. And it turned out one of the articles was about this idiot who stole one of his airplanes and took it for a joyride. The trouble was he didn't know how to fly. Oh. Yeah. Sounds dangerous. Yeah, well, it was dangerous, and it wasn't good for him. He wound up drilling a hole in the ground. Yikes. I was reading the article, and I flipped the newsprint over, and on the other side was a story about one of Al Capone's gang's mob hits. And I thought to myself, oh, yeah, that's true. While my grandfather was flying around, prohibition was raging, and Capone ruled Chicago. Mm, right. In your mind, sometimes you kind of separate things. Yeah, you don't necessarily associate your pilot grandfather with Al Capone. No, but they were moving through Chicago at the same time. It's just Al was cruising Cicero in his car, and my grandfather was flying over Cicero in his plane. But they were basically inhabiting the same city. Again, we just put our memories in silos sometimes. We don't look at the big picture. Yeah. Obviously, Romanoff knew gangsters. Here's a story about one of them that took place in 1925. You'll find the name of a man named Sammy Samuts Amatuna. Sammy Samuts was a little five foot two, loved opera, loved it madly, went to most operas. Sammy used to hang out over at Old Citro's place on Halsett Street. And Sammy, at that time, was charging $50 to use his violin case. He was a wonderful man with music. In the violin case was a machine gun, that's all. And all he wanted was $50. Sammy's art was so good that after he exterminated for the $50, he would go to the opera. He would buy tickets for it. Finally, Sam's trade, used by Capone, used by all of them as the killer. Little Sammy and his violin finally now came to the price of $5,000, he was so good, for a mission, which meant more tickets for the opera, of course. <laughs> Sammy, when I'd go over to Citro's, finally got to know me through Citro. And he came over and said, would you have a drink with me? I said, sure, Sammy. Had a drink with him and a toast, and he went back his table. The next time, he'd evidently found out all about me, and he came up to the table, and I don't know whether I had a headache or what, and a sort of grimacing, and he said, Mr. Romy, you know like somebody? I help. No money. I help. <laughs> Poor Sammy. One day, went to the barbershop, getting ready to go to a musical or something. He left his violin case in a corner. He was lathered up. He was going to be a dandy, as always he made him after a killing. Somebody killed Sammy in there. And in his pockets, I helped find six front row seats for the opera. <laughs> so you secured this recording, Chris. Did you use some, say, nefarious means to capture this recording and wheedle it away from some dark vault and highly protected location? Well, that would be a better story, but unfortunately, 
No. <laughs> are you saying the Cub Scout and Alder Boy that you are, you did not do any misdeeds to secure this? I would say the answer to your question, Patrick, is serendipity. This is how it happened. I wrote a book, Chicago's Midway Airport, the first 75 years. You practically grew up on that airport. I did. And as you've told me with the little battery-powered tape recorder, talking to pilots and catching interviews. You're right. I was a precocious brat at the time, a teenager who would bug these pilots and ask them questions about flying some World War II and whatnot. And, you know, they were in their 60s at the time. I was 14, 15. And they had time in between flights. They were flying private jets now. And they would tell me stories. And I don't think I ever thought it would turn into a book, but that's how it goes sometimes. Sure. And that research also led me to my second book, When Hollywood Landed at Chicago's Midway Airport, The Photos and Stories of Mike Rotano. Right. I've read that book. That's an interesting read. He must have been quite the character. Rotano with his camera there at Midway, capturing all the stars coming through and famous people that he hobnobbed with while they were waiting to have the plane refuel and fly on to the other side of the country, typically? Absolutely, Patrick. And as you know, Mike Rotuno, who was this famous photographer, and his beat was Midway Airport. In this era before private and long-range jets, famous people from Hollywood or politicians or stars, they would travel like the rest of us in coach because first class wasn't really a thing yet in that era. And Rotuno's job was to get the photo of that star. Now, if he got a photo of John Wayne, for example, with a TWA logo in the background, and the photo ran in the newspapers, the airlines would pay Rotano because it was a form of PR, and Rotano was great at it. And he wouldn't just get one logo in the background. Sometimes he'd get several. He just had a, a just a knack for that. And when Rotano wasn't working at the airport, he often would pick up jobs at night for the newspapers, and many times he worked for Harry Romanoff. So when I was researching the Rotano book, Rotano's daughter, Mimi, sent me some materials saying that perhaps this collection might be of interest. And one of the items she sent was an audio recording that Mimi had transferred from a reel-to-reel tape. But a mystery remained for me. When and where was it recorded? Sure, yeah, that'd be a good question. When I got the tape, it just said Harry Romanoff interview. There was no date or time or whatnot. So I did some sleuthing and found information about it in the congressional record. You're kidding. Believe it or not, Roman Pachinski was a congressman. And before becoming a congressman, he was a journalist. And so he obviously knew Harry Romanoff and wanted to give him a tribute. So in the congressional record, he quotes an article in the Chicago American about this retirement party for Romanoff and nine other journalists who were also retiring. And it was from this article that I learned that this party with 600 guests attending. Wow. Occurred on June 3rd, 1969 at Ferrara Manor, 5699 West North Avenue in Chicago. Puchinski said about Romanoff, quote, Romanoff is legendary. There has never been anyone like him in American journalism, and I think it is safe to predict that there will never again be anyone like him. As Night City editor, Romanoff has never hesitated to call anyone anywhere in the world if he thought he could develop a fresh lead or a new development in a story for the morning's edition. I do not believe there is a public official of stature in this country who has not experienced a nocturnal call from Romanoff in the middle hours of the night asking about some details regarding a story that Romy was developing. 
Romanoff is the very essence of the high spirit of competition, which has made American journalism the safeguard in our society that no constitution in itself can provide. Mm, high praise from a congressman. And then he submits into that statement the actual article by reporter George Murray that talks about the retirement of Romanoff. This is 50 years on the job. Wow. There was one other guest at that retirement party that is pretty famous in their own right. Anyone who is a Chicago sports fan would recognize the importance of this figure. Before the tape of the party ends, the unknown MC walks over and talks to this gentleman. Let's hear the tape. This has been an affair which will be long remembered by Harry and his many friends that attended here tonight. Now we're going to have a few words from Billy Goldsianis, who is a very dear friend of his. This is Billy Goldsianis. I know Mr. Romanoff when he was a cop reporter. He was covered a lot of police stations in the south side, special stockyards, 47 place in Holstead. When I was newsboy, I had the corner of 47 and Holstead, selling newspapers. Also, well, he was making a new city station, Wabash Street Station, a lot of others. So Mr. Romanoff and I, we've been friends for the last 50 years. Very good friends. And I wish Mr. Romanoff good luck. Yes, folks, that person who was just interviewed was none other than Billy Goat Cyanus, the owner of the Billy Goat Tavern and the person who supposedly put a curse on the Cubs. He and his goat. <laughs> That's right. The Cubs kicked Billy Goat Cyanus and his goat Murphy out of the fourth game of the 1945 World Series. And supposedly, an outraged Cyanus allegedly declared, quote, them Cubs, they ain't gonna win no more, which has been interpreted to mean that the Cubs would never win another National League pennant, at least for the remainder of Cyanus's life. However, the curse of the Billy Goat finally came to an end in 2016, as you know, Patrick, with the Cubs winning the uh, World Series. And in fact, the Cubs won the NLCS, their first pennant in 71 years, on October 22nd, the anniversary of Billy Goat Cyanus's death in 1970. You know, we should also mention, of course, that he was the restaurateur of the Billy Goat Tavern which there are now multiple locations, but the main one was right underneath the Tribune in the Wrigley Building. Yes, right. And in fact, I was invited to a party this evening at the Billy Goat Tavern, and I told the person, I can't go. I'm talking about the Billy Goat Tavern. I can't go to it. <laughs> and of course, the Billy Goat Tavern was famous for- I don't want a cheeseburger. It's too early for a cheeseburger. It's too early for a cheeseburger? Look. That famous Saturday Night Live skit. John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd. So, yes. Anyway, in that congressional record entered by Roman Paczynski that I read from earlier, Paczynski added, quote, it would be foolish to think that in his retirement, Romanoff will give up his journalistic interests, and I am sure that for many years to come, we will see the skillful hand of Romanoff exert its influence on the American scene. They want me to go into the business office. I don't know whether I want it or not. I've had a half a dozen offers, but... I'm not going to lay down. I'm not going to quit, no matter what it is. And if ever any of you fellas are in trouble, if it takes me six months to get you out, 
A jail. I will. I promise you that. <laughs> no matter if I'm home and you call me in the middle of the night, I'll start the ball rolling, you know. So six months later, you'll see its result. Well, Patrick, that was not to be. The New York Times ran an article on December 19th, 1970. Harry Romanoff, a Chicago newspaper man from the days of the front page, died in an Augustana hospital today of a stroke, suffered in October. He was 79 years old. And then it goes on to recount his life. And in that obituary, it says, I believe in the public's right to know, he once said, if the story is important to the American people, I have no compunction about calling their public officials in the middle of the night to get it. I think Romney would have liked that New York Times quote about the public's right to know. You know, it's sad to think that he passed away just a year and a half after this retirement party. Yeah, it is. Harry Romanoff, a life well lived. He was an editor from a bygone era that has receded into history. But thanks to a 54-year-old audio recording, we listeners, Patrick, got to hear the great stories retold again. Well, it's a little bit of a snapshot inside the newspaper business. Yeah. The Roaring Twenties, the front page era. In honor of Harry Romanoff and Billy Goat Cyanus, I would suggest go to the Billy Goat Tavern for lunch sometime and bring a newspaper. It's a great way to enjoy your cheeseburger or cheeseburger and catch up on the news of the day. No pun intended. <laughs> Very good. Thank you for listening. Audio editing by Christopher Lynch and Patrick McBriarty at the Waveland Island Studios. And special thanks to Jill Hogginson for the idea and branding assistance and Nate Kennedy for technical support and specking our audio equipment. Well, one last story, Patrick. You know I'm a nerd. I watch PBS. I like all those nature shows. Yeah, well, we're not too different there. Well, I know you like PBS because your bridge program ran on it. Yeah, I was actually was just had lunch with Stephen Hatch yesterday and the co-producer of your program. And we were talking about that. It's it's been now ten years since that's first aired. And we were thinking we should talk to WTTW and see if we can't get him to show it again. Anyway. So anyway, Patrick, I just threw you a huge plug. Right. So that was a softball, Patrick. Sure. Anyway, so you know, PBS, they have these fundraisers. And in nineteen seventy two they had fundraisers too. And they, for one of their fundraisers, the phone of Harry Romanoff was auctioned. Oh, wow. That's hilarious. And the price kept on going up and up and up. And finally, it was $235. Well, and wait a minute. I think there was an article that I saw, something about that, where the writer commented about how when Harry got excited, he just spit all over that phone right right well um the article is in this amazing website called roseland chicago 1972 it's on substack okay and the article talks about how in an era before air conditioning and good takeout food romy would get chicken delivered to him from mr chicken on ontario and basically He'd be on the phone, you know, sweating and the chicken would be dripping and whatnot. And every now and then he'd say, this phone doesn't work. And then the, the phone guy would come and just clean out the grease from the chicken. 
But um, anyway, this phone, which didn't even work by 1972, was sold. And my question is, where is this phone today? Yeah. If anybody knows, send us a message. Yeah, because that belongs in the museum somewhere. And take apart the little speaking piece and see if there's any chicken grease still in there for us, will you? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But whoever owns that phone, maybe it's in someone's closet. You have a valuable relic from the front page era. Yeah, very cool. Stories historians. Thank you for listening to the Windy City Historians Podcast.